Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we read of your revelation, of who you are and what you plan to do from the beginning of time, from before this world was set in motion. Every plan and intention of your perfect will has come to pass and will come to pass, including Ezekiel 37, 24, where we read this prophecy, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, they and their children, and their children's children. And their children's children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Heavenly Father, in Matthew 21, as you have so lovingly recorded for us, there is the moment where the Son of David enters into Jerusalem, seated humbly, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden, according to the prophet. And the children are crying in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. They said, Yes, Lord, and you said through the mouth of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have revealed the way of salvation and that you have sent your Son to be born of a woman, God in flesh, Emmanuel with us, of whom we cry this morning with the children in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. We thank you that we are ruled by David, the Son of David, that we are his sheep, he is our shepherd, and through him we have eternal life. We are the people of God because of the work of our Savior, and so may you be exalted, Jesus Christ, and the praises of your people today. May you be proclaimed through the delivery of your word this morning. May you touch the hearts of all of the hearers that they may, might be drawn unto you, and that their knee might bow and their tongue would confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. We thank you for the moments that you have prepared for us to walk in today. We pray that your word would move every saved soul in this place to obedience and every lost soul to repentance, that your kingdom might grow and expand and fill this earth, that your glory might be seen among the nations as you prepare for yourself a people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord, what a great privilege it is to celebrate together and to worship our Lord and to read His Scripture and hear it proclaimed in our ears. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14 will be our text this morning. In these verses, we have the parable of the wedding feast, where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who sends out a summons for a wedding and a celebration of that event for his son. And the summons goes out to many different kinds of people, and it's received in different ways. This morning we'll read this passage and then see what we might learn from this text. So stand with me if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 22. And let's read 
together, verses 1 through 14. Follow me as I read God's holy word in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, verse 8, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads. And invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. The title of this message today is The Absolute RSVP. The absolute RSVP. There's language that sounds like a respond, please, a polite invitation for a, an event that is scheduled because of an occasion worth celebrating, like a wedding. That's something that's familiar to us. Many of you have been uh, married, or if you're not, you've attended a wedding. And no doubt, if you've been involved in any way in one of these celebrations, you received one of those well-crafted, thoughtful invites in the mail. And there's invariably a little card in there, please respond. RSVP actually stands for four French words I neither know or can pronounce if I did. But it basically means, would you do me the courtesy of responding to my invitation? In our culture, this is sort of an open-ended thing, and you can politely decline. That's where the analogy breaks down. In the case of this wedding, the RSVP has two options. You either attend and you're favored by the host, or you're banished from that wedding and you enter a place of eternal torment characterized by the language, the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. We have in this parable, we have a biblical declaration of the inevitable end of every human being. We have the shape of the historical direction of humanity figured in this feast and celebration. And as we read it, we find that it is weighty indeed. Jesus is teaching of this wedding feast, and it's certainly this parable, I would say, is one of the most paradigmatic of them all. An adjective meaning paradigm or uh, comparing this parable to something that sets a tone or is 
a very important and central teaching to understand the rest of what the Scriptures say. The paradigm of this parable unlocks themes from the Old Testament into the New. We'll touch on a few of them today. It's interesting because, once again, the animosity of those who disagreed with Christ proved to be a suitable occasion for Him to address two different types of people. Notice in verse chapter 21, verses 45 and 46, we read this last time we were in Matthew. Let's read again. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard His parables, and in this case, the two that are in view are the parables of the tenants, the vineyard parables, When the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now Jesus, God in flesh as he was, understood that these parables were falling on rebellious ears. That did not stop him. He did not shrink back or shy away from delivering the truth even when he knew the hearers were absolutely opposed to every single word that called them out as rebellious, obstinate, obstinate, hell-bent sinners. Yet Jesus Christ continues, There is a lesson even here for us. We are called to bear witness to a truth that sounds like the worst possible news to the ears of, of the sinner who wants to be self-justified, continue without guilt on his way down the road of hating God and indulging his flesh at every turn. Though we know full well that the unbeliever hates the things of God, and unless God softens that heart of clay and makes it a heart of flesh, he will likely oppose us sometimes by persecution, sometimes by withdrawing, sometimes by strained relationships, yet we're called to continue to speak God's Word. And Jesus modeled this for us. Though He knew His life was threatened by the very hearers, and that the more He spoke to demonstrate their situation, the greater chance He had of being arrested and killed, He spoke anyway. Why? Because there was a greater good than the preservation of His own life in view here, and that was the glory of of God. And the glory of God would be manifest in He Himself even going to the cross, dying at the hands of wicked men. And even here, again, it's a lesson for us. Sometimes the glory of God is more greatly manifest in us when we suffer for His sake, when we join in the fellowship of His sufferings. And so on the heels of the chief priests and the Pharisees opposing what He says, Jesus continues with yet another parable that describes their condition, and everyone else like-minded. Thus, the animosity of the priests and Pharisees in 21, 45 through 46 provides occasion for instruction of utmost significance. Major themes of redemptive and revelatory continuity, that means the thread and theme, the binding elements of all of Scripture, they converge in this chapter of Christ's teaching. This parable helps to tie up what might otherwise be loose ends in our biblical understanding. The sweeping scope of truth is notable here as well. And certainly we can conclude from just these observations that only inspired words from the author of history could circumscribe ages of instruction in one short story. This is one of those moments in Scripture 
where the whole of special revelation can be more tangibly appreciated as we behold its many key ideas, in this case, in one teaching or didactic nutshell. So let us consider some of the weight and profundity of the parable of the wedding feast today under this heading, weighing the context of the wedding feast parable. So considering or weighing the context of the wedding feast parable under three categories today. First of all, let us consider its linguistic significance. There are a few pairs of words that I've highlighted that I think if we visit them in kind of a word study format in their original language, it would help us to understand what Jesus is communicating here. To gain a little bit more close relationship to the language, to the words and the concepts, therefore, themselves. Secondly, I'd like to consider what comes before this parable and what comes after in special revelation or in God's Word. There are Old Testament themes that Jesus draws upon, and then there are New Testament realities and fulfillments. And there's also prophecy yet to be fulfilled along these lines, and so we'll touch on that briefly. And thirdly and finally, this morning we'll discuss the who's who of this parable. Who's excluded from the feast? Who's included from the wedding celebration? And who is engaged in the will of the Father accordingly? So first of all, this morning, linguistic significance. Let us look closely before we step back for a little broader view. Let's, let us look closely at concepts underscored in some original Greek terms. And the first two words appear in the English as sent and servants, and they are related to one another. Reading again, 22.1. It says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants. Two key words there that will help unlock some more meaning of this text, sent and servants. They appear again. So we continue to read, To call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Verse 4, it's repeated. Again, he sent other servants, saying. So we have this picture of the host of this event, also the Father of the Son, and the Lord of glory, the ultimate sovereign, is pictured here sending servants per a particular task. And in this case, they are to bring an invitation to those who are called to come and join in this celebration. When their invitation is met with mixed response, later in verse 10, he sends the servants out yet a third time with new directions. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So among the uh, compilation of characters in this teaching story, we have those servants who are sent. When we look more closely at the terms here that are employed in the original language, we find that this word sent in the Greek is apostello, apostello. And it means to be sent forth as a, mes uh, as a messenger. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 10. This word appears in other uh, portions of Matthew's gospel. One you'll be very familiar with, we touched on last week in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission. There's another commission moment in Matthew, though, in chapter 10, where these terms and this concept is employed. And it's helpful for us to understand, therefore, the meaning 
of the wedding feast parable. In Matthew chapter 10, we read in 16 through 20, Behold, so Jesus speaking to the disciples, Behold, I am sending, that's the same word there, the root, you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as does. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Another key word and related idea, to bear witness, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, verse 19, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is another moment where sending as an agent, a messenger, a herald, an ambassador from the Lord to others is central to the text. And it is the same idea. When Jesus sends out, or when God sends out on behalf of the event for His Son, servants to bring the invitation to join in the wedding celebration, He is doing so, or He's alluding to, the same manner of sending that this proto-commission, if you will, uh, that, that we see in this proto-commission, if you will, in Matthew chapter 10. Thus, to be sent is to be, go, is to be sent out as one who represents a truth. The root apostoleo or apostello is also the same root as apostle, which simply means a messenger or a sent one. And those who are sent have a priority, goal, and motive and purpose in mind. For the glory of Almighty God, they will not rest until they've accomplished their task. And as they are sent, regardless of how their message is received, they are called to obey. And even when their message is meant in some is met in some cases with uh, just ignoring them and writing them off and just rudely kind of not even listening, or far worse, if they are called to testify or to witness to the power of God by giving their own lives, the sent ones, the apostles, if you will, the ones that are given this commission to go forth, it does not change their task. And so this helps us to understand the elements of this parable, the characters in this parable. Matthew 28, of course, uh, the close of this book includes a sending ceremony and a moment in Jesus' ministry where He declares to them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. So the implication then is, go therefore as delegates of that authority to make disciples of all nations. And those who are called to go are therefore the sent ones, the ones that are going forward to bring the message, the invitation, the gospel, the summons to appear at this wedding feast, to acknowledge the instruction and the word of the Father, and to obey, to lay aside the things that they would otherwise put their hand to do, even if it's something like, uh, you know, working hard in your field or working on some sort of economic enterprise, or even as we see in Luke 14, um, just newly married, all of those things that would otherwise occupy our attention, our attention by way of priority ought to be put aside when we hear the uh, herald coming from Christ through His sent ones. 
And as we have it in the Great Commission, this includes baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I and Christ's words have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The second term of note related to this is servants. The word servants is doulos. And in the Greek, the idea here that the word connotes is belonging to another. Someone who gives himself, giving oneself wholly to another's will. It is a slave who willingly serves his master. And in this way, as we see the context of the rest of Scripture, especially New Testament language, pick up on these themes, we find that the apostles begin to refer to themselves in this way. Not just the apostles referring to themselves, but they also describe the Christian life as one of dutiful service, a servant, a doulos, a slave who would serve their master, who would put aside all his uh, self-importance and rights, put aside all of his uh, civil rights and prerogatives, if you will, in, to uh, surrender wholly and completely to his master, to his savior, to his Lord. And thus, in this word servant, we have this idea of belonging to another, giving oneself wholly to his service, which includes implicit trust and implicit loyalty. Titus 1.1, Paul introduces himself as a servant of the Lord and includes Timothy in that designation, same Greek word. Romans 1.1, Paul also says, we'll turn to one or two of these, just to give you a flavor of how the gospel of the kingdom is picked up by the apostles. This message of Jesus, that is to say, in the wedding feast parable, becomes paradigmatic, if you will, or thematic for those who would bring the message of the gospel forward. Romans 1.1, for instance, Paul, a servant, Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, a sent one, remember, set apart for the gospel of God. They're set apart means that his duty and his identity is completely given to this one task to serve the Lord and to bring his gospel. And of course, he goes on to say in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son. Thus, Paul is a servant in a long line of God's means of self-disclosure. Whereas he has given his truth in the past through prophets, who were called to lay aside creature comforts and follow the word of God, even if it meant unto the death. So the new servants of Christ in the new covenant era, Paul and company were called to be witnesses and to do the same, to be the doulos of Christ, the sent ones that were set apart for the gospel, that were promised uh, uh, to bring the message promised beforehand unto the ends of the earth, both Jews and Greeks, to as many as the Lord would call them to reach. There's other passages where Peter identifies himself, 2 Peter 1.1, James 1.1, Jude 1.1. The beginning of many of these epistles in the New Testament, they open with Peter, a, a, a servant of Jesus Christ. James, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and so on. Thus, it's helpful to see how the meaning and the weight of the text then in Matthew 22, where we find the same word, and we can start to see how the different elements of New Testament a ministry that God has ordained apostles and his disciples to walk in fit in to what he is declaring in this story. 
Secondly, there's two, uh, two, a second pair of words to consider. The first, or the second is friends, and the first is one Greek word, but three words translated in our language, pay no attention. Um, verse 5 of chapter 22 in Matthew says, But they, these are those who will reject the summons, the invite, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, in the text here, the host of the wedding feast addresses another one who is not in good standing, who is not in his favor in this party. This is one who is gathered into the event but is not wearing a garment. And in verse 12 it says, He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? So these are two words that refer to those who do not RSVP, who do not uh, agree and respect and honor and are courteous and attend this celebration. They're not in good standing with the host. The first uh, word, uh, which is translated, pay no attention, is helpful for us, mleo. Mleo means to ne neglect with careless disregard. This is helpful for us because we've uh, studied this concept two weeks ago in a sermon titled, The Danger of Dullness from Hebrews chapter 6. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's admonition, even using the same Greek word, uh, and warning that those who fellowship within the church in an external or a superficial way may not find themselves like those uh, in this parable who are ultimately rejected. Hebrews 2.3, for instance, we read the following, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard. That word neglect is the same word. We've covered it in our Hebrews study. But now we can see a little bit more specifically how it relates to the gospel as Jesus described it in his kingdom comparison parables. Just like those in the Hebrews who fellowshiped in this church to whom Hebrews was written were in danger of neglecting so great a salvation, so the hearers of the summons from the servants who are bringing the invitation to the masses were also in danger when they paid no attention and went off instead to the distractions and the cares of life, like farming or other business. So we must be careful to see how serious this can be. Later in the book of Hebrews, we covered at length chapter 6, but later in the book of Hebrews, there's judgment pronounced for this kind of response to the call of the gospel. And we read this in Hebrews 8.8. 8. It says, Behold, this is a quote, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Same Greek word appears there. When God says, in this case, I showed no concern for them. So what's the message? For those who ignore the summons and the call of the gospel, they will also be ignored. The lack of concern that they pay to the host of the wedding feast, which represents the gospel and salvation, 
the celebration of new life available only with those clothes and clothed in Christ's robes of righteousness. For those who pay no attention to that, there will come a time when the host will pay no attention to them. And this is the message of Hebrews relating to this word. The second term, friend, is also significant. In verse 12, he said to him, and this is in a confrontational tone, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Now, if we look at that word closely, it means an associate or a companion that is really a friend in name only. And this word appears two other times, at least, in the book of Matthew. And one is in reference to the grumbling servant, or the, the grumbling hiree, who was paid the denarius a day according to contract, and then he protested when others who worked less hours received the same. And in that parable, the term is friend. Did I not do justly, you know, paraphrasing? I'm giving you according to the covenant, to the contract. You have no right to complain. The second term is even more significant, or the second use, um, in cross-reference, and that's in Matthew 20, or 26, 50. And in this case, Jesus uh, refers to Judas directly with this same term. So what does friend mean in this sense? Well, Jesus is refer, or the uh, host of the party refers to, to this person who is refusing to wear the wedding garments in the same way that Christ referred to Judas, recognizing that they were an associate and a comrade externally, but really was in name only. In the end, that is to say, they were a superficial friend. They were no friend at all. And in fact, they were an enemy. They did not submit to the Lord and thus were ultimately rejected. And thirdly, this morning, under linguistic significance, just to give ourselves a little bit more of the underpinnings of this passage. There's two words uh, call, uh, and referred to in the text by called and chosen. Last verse, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. In verse 3, which we've already read, it says, and sent his servant to call those who were invited to the feast. Again, there's this invitation language in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. The word in the Greek is for invited is kaleo. And this is the calling forth by vocal proclamation. It's the summons of the gospel. It is the summons unto, the invitation unto the blessings of the heavenly kingdom. This is a word and this is a command, in fact, that comes through the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ for those who are lost to obtain eternal life, salvation through Jesus Christ. This calling is a term that denotes a herald or a messenger who would go forth like a town crier with bearing the authority of the one who sent him, who would stand in the public square and make a proclamation. There are those who would stop their ears, perhaps. There are those who will ignore. Perhaps there are hecklers who would throw a rotten tomato in his direction. But that does not reduce the weight of his words one iota. In fact, those who do not receive or hear or submit to the summons of the herald will find themselves out of favor with the sovereign. And he will mark them because he is omniscient in the case of God himself. He will see their attitude of obstinance 
or ignorance or just putting it out of their mind, distractions, whatever else causes them to not pay attention and to heed the word, and they will in the end be judged accordingly. This is the idea here. Do you remember the quote from maybe it was last week or a week or two ago from Art Azurdia who mentioned along these lines that the gospel is not an invitation as much as it is a summons. It is a command. And to deny the gospel isn't to just disregard an invitation, but it's an act of defiance against the sovereign. And in this parable, when we look at the original language, we find that this call and this summons is more than just an invitation as we know it culturally. Something that you could take or leave and still be polite. No, it's not that at all. It's a commandment to appear. It carries with it serious consequences and sanctions if you ignore or if you defy it. And then secondly, and a related word is electos. And of course, the election is similar language. And that's in fact what this chosen word means when it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's the same as saying many are called or invited to use the other uh, English word that is substituted for the Greek in this passage, but few are elect. Elect are those in Scripture as we see this concept uh, through the old into the new who are personally chosen by God for the rending of special, rendering of special service to Him. And in Scripture, this is with reference to a number of things, including the Hebrews, those who are called or who are elect from all the peoples of the earth. Remember the covenant of Abraham? I've called you and elected you, electos, to be a light for the nations. You have a covenantal duty to shine and to steward the message and the promise that I give you in order to be a shining beacon of truth for others. In that sense, Abraham was elect. In the same way, those in the lineage of Abraham and the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, had a similar call. To them was given the oracles of God, most clearly and in writing and emphatically on stone, the law of God's word was granted to them because they were the elect ones called to steward His word. The Messiah is spoken of as the elect or the called one, the, the one appointed to render unto God a specific task. And so in this way, Jesus himself is elect. And finally, Christians are referred to as the electos, the elect, the called ones who are appointed to shine forth as salt and light and to be a beacon for truth. So that's a bit of the linguistic significance that might help us understand at a more rich level the context of the wedding feast parable. Secondly, let's touch on the second major point this morning a little bit of the before and after. What appears before Matthew 22 in the revelation of God, and for this I'll turn you back to Isaiah 25, and then what appears after, and that we'll, we'll touch on Revelation in a few moments. In Isaiah, there's feast language that is messianic and prophetic, and it is a prior allusion that Jesus refers to in this imagery. There's prophecies throughout the book of Isaiah that in some ways might be a little mysterious to the reader at the time. But as we see them, as the Spirit opens our eyes in light of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, a whole wealth of revelation dawns upon the Spirit-opened eye as we look at the text. 
Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, let's consider this prophecy. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the approach of His people He will take away from all the earth. So do you hear the message in the book of Isaiah of the Messiah to come? His coming is described in terms of a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a time of gathering, communion, and celebration, provision, a time of wealth and prosperity. And included in this is the promise that death, the things that linger as the curse and sorrowful condition because of the sin of mankind, these things will be swallowed up themselves. Death will be done away with forever, and God will wipe away every tear from every face. Instead of, like in this life, a sentimental memory of that moment of happiness where we join fellow relatives in communion, and then it gives way to the warp and woof, the difficulty of life, or maybe we have something in the future we look forward to, but in the meantime, we go through the trials and temptations and difficulties. The promise in Scripture is one day, Every joyful communion and feast that you have had with your closest friends and most beloved relatives will be surpassed forever when the people of God join in the marriage supper of the Lamb and there is, there, and there is then no sorrow, no darkness, no shadow of turning, no pain, no regrets, and no sin. All of that is gone. And just the joyful partaking of the feast laid before us by the Messiah with His rich food and well-aged wine laid before us to partake and enjoy with overwhelming gratitude for his, to His glory forever and ever. This was the prophecy. This was the messianic hope. This was what the faithful in the Old Testament longed to see. And if they had been alive in the day that Jesus arrived, the faithful would have known, here He was. Think of the miracles of Christ. Turn with me, if you would, for a moment to John chapter 2. The miracles of Christ show by His sovereign, miraculous power the fulfillment of these very prophecies. We won't touch on the feeding of the 5,000, but there was multiple times when that miracle took place, and there is a reason why. The reason is because Jesus was showing by that mighty work that He was the Messiah who was the bread and the manna in the wilderness, but more than just provision for a time for mere survival. He was the Messiah who would spread a table before them in the presence of their enemies eternal, so that they may not fear sorrow and death anymore. But in Jesus Christ, they would have perfect and complete reconciliation, and joyful celebration with the Father. Let us note in John 2, the very first miracle that Jesus did, and this, of course, is by sovereign design. John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Wait, there was what? A wedding in Cana at Galilee. 
There's a wedding and a feast in view, is there not? And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, wait, the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. Remember Isaiah 25? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. And this is about to take place in miraculous form at this wedding. It says in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. Isn't that interesting? Jars that were used ceremonially, according to the Old Covenant, liturgy and laws, to purify symbolically, but can never ultimately take away sins, are now employed for a different purpose. So these vessels used in, before this point for Jewish rites of, of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know from where it came, or where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. There is such a profound significance that the first of Jesus' great miracles done to manifest His glory was at a wedding, and it, was, and it included a new use, a new covenant use, if you will, symbolically for instruments of old covenant purification that were now filled with wine for the purpose of celebration in the context of a joyful wedding ceremony. And so now as we take in view some of the context the before and the after and the during of Jesus' ministry, the Matthew 22 prophecy and parable of the great wedding feast takes on extra significance, does it not? Now let's close this section, considering the before and after, with another prophecy that Mark read to us from Revelation 19. This motif or this theme of wedding and celebration is picked up again, and we find in this prophecy a powerful future fulfillment that we look forward to. Verse 6, Then I heard, and it seemed to be, the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Notice here, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is a powerful picture of the future, of the eschatological hope, the end of time reality, the glories that the Lord has prepared for us once we pass from this life related to the parable of the wedding feast. As we recall Matthew 22, and we take it in light of Revelation 19, we see again 
how significant it is when there's wedding garments involved. The king came in to look at the guests, and he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And we uh, see then that he was banished from the feast. But conversely, we see in Revelation 19, the answer to the ex- and the expectation, what of those who have their garments? Those who have their garments, have them washed pure. They are the righteous deeds enabled for them to wear because of the righteous deeds of Christ. And they participate in this feast in joyful celebration, exalting the Lord and celebrating. And there is no sunset on this feast. They will never put this joyful moment behind them. They will never taste sorrow again. Only the new wine of glorious messianic fulfillment and perfect restored reconciliation and worship of Almighty God forever and ever. Clothed in the robes of His righteousness, sharing in the fellowship of all the saints and the Lord of glory, the triune God of Scripture sits at table with all of us one day and because of the righteous work of Christ, we can celebrate the fulfillment and we will be there if you're in Him today of the parable of the wedding feast. Powerful indeed. Thus we see the feast of the Messiah in Isaiah 25 fulfilled in Christ. We see the ministry inauguration of Christ at the moment when He entered into His ministry sharing His glory with those who looked on involving a feast and wine and celebration. And we see from cover to cover, from Revelation, the message of wedding. Some have noted that the Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. There's a hinge point in Malachi related to the covenant of marriage because there's been a breakdown in relationships, even maritally, where uh, wives of youth have been forsaken and hearts have been estranged between fathers and sons. There's a cry for the Messiah to come, and when He does, He will restore. He will reconcile marriages and relationships. And then, in the New Testament, we haven't covered it this morning so far, but you'll recall Ephesians 5. Marital language is used to describe Christ's relationship to His church. We are the bride. He is our bridegroom. And the Bible closes, as we've just read in Revelation 19, with a marriage. You see all through Scripture that these things were ordained by God to explain to us the power of this parable, the parable of the wedding feast. There are things that are beyond our understanding Uh, ultimately this side of glory, but we can increase in the knowledge of the same when we realize what the Bible is telling us, the joyful expectation well described by a marriage in these terms. Finally this morning, major point, who's who in this parable? Weighing the context of the wedding feast parable by asking ourselves, who's who here? First of all, who is excluded from this feast? Again, reading in verse 5, verse 4, Again, he sent an other servants, saying, Tell them who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Here's the first category of those who are excluded in verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. In Luke 14, As I mentioned briefly before, 
there's a parallel text, very similar language and imagery that Jesus employs to get his point across. He says in this section, Luke 14, 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. This is again, this first category of those who are excluded from the feast. Those who, in the words of Matthew 22, pay no attention, and those who in Luke 14 begin to make excuses. Excuses why they can't submit to the summons. Excuses why they won't attend the wedding feast. The first said, and here's some examples, the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Sounds polite enough, doesn't it? But these are all excuses. These are unacceptable. Verse 20, another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city to bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So the first category of those who are excluded from the feast are those who are corrupted, distracted, whose priorities are consumed by the suffocating, tantalizing uh, a lust for cares of this life. Good things become becoming an idol. Other priorities begin to dominate their affections. They begin to care more about ensuring their financial future than they do the fact that they belong to a body of Christ, bought by Christ's blood, and they have the privilege and expectation of joining Him in communion one day. I've often asked you through the years, do you take note of Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, and have you ever planned of maybe a family vacation around that so you are careful not to miss that very important element of our fellowship here together. One of the reasons it's so important is communion here at this little body reminds us of the priority and importance of what communion means, more broadly speaking. When we value communion with God's people, joining, symbolically partaking of Christ's, bread, Christ's blood and body with those elements, we are remembering the themes and proclaiming them to ourselves and setting apart that time to hold us accountable that some things are more important than anything else in life. Even closing an important real estate deal, even going and inspecting some oxen or some piece of equipment that we have just purchased, even making a priority and singling out the love of our life in that honeymoon stage when we have just been married. All these things are appropriate and good in their proper place. But if any of them supersede in our affections the priority of how precious communion with Christ is, then they need to be laid aside. They need to be put in their proper place and we need to repent. Because paying no attention or even offering an excuse will not fly when it comes to the terms of fellowship and inclusion in the wedding feast, the great wedding feast ultimately pictured in glory. That's the first category of those who are excluded. The second category we'll spend less time on because we've expounded in prior weeks. They are the blatantly rebellious. The chief priests, the Pharisees, they heard this parable in verse 45, chapter 21, they perceive you speaking about them. 
And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. These, I submit to you, are they who are represented in 22 in this parable in verse 6. It says, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. These, these are the ones who are so obstinate and opposed to the message of Christ that they, by their words and deeds, oppose it outright. And they, are unashamed, and they do it unashamedly. They don't make no bones about it. They don't just uh, kind of tacitly ignore. They don't offer excuses. They just hate God and they wear that on their sleeve. You know, the atheists, the agnostics, and the motivated critics of Christianity and the like. These are the ones who fall into the second category of those who are excluded, the blatantly rebellious. Those who, especially as we see in the text, their life station, they're important people, or they see themselves as important anyway, scribes, elders, priests, Pharisees, their life station lends itself to more directly oppose Christ. They have too much in their self-idolatry to lose, and so they make no bones about it. They just hate the word on the face of it. That's the second category of those excluded. Submit to you, there's a third category, and these would fall under the category of hypocrites. Notice that there are those who actually come to the feast represented by one man who are ultimately rejected from the fellowship. Verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there, I should back up to ten, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So you get the picture there. There's a great in-gathering. So these are ones who... They paid attention, they actually came, they didn't offer an excuse, and they have come through the door, as it were. And he said to them, and he said to him, verse 12, or 11, I'm sorry, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And what was the fate of this man who was not prepared and not equipped for this feast, who wasn't properly attired. It says in verse 13, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot. And in the, in the original language there, it's much like handcuffed or arrest. Put into shackles to dispose of judiciously according to the law that they have broken. Bind him hand and foot. Cast him out into utter, utter darkness. And now I submit to you, he will join the same place that the prior two categories do the blatantly rebellious and those who pay no attention. Where will he be thrown? He will be cast into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this is perhaps the most deceptive category at all of all. This is perhaps the most shocking. There are those who actually fellowship to a degree and for a time with others who are at the feast and ultimately are rejected. In this case... Matthew Henry writes of them as hypocrites. He says, the case of hypocrites, and here's an important phrase, well stated by Matthew Henry, who are in the church but not of it. In the case of hypocrites who are in the church but not of it, who have a name to live but are not alive indeed, is represented by the guest that had not on a wedding garment. Had not on a wedding garment. You've heard the phrase from Scripture, be in the world and not of it. Though we fellowship in the world to, uh, in one sense, uh, not fellowship truly, but interacting in the daily affairs of this life with unbelievers, there is something distinct about the nature and the relationship of the believer to the wicked world. Though he is in it, 
he is not of it. What Matthew Henry is saying is that there are those throughout the church age of whom it could be said in relationship to the body of Christ. They are in the church, but they are not of it. They're partaking in the you know, relational interchange and the commerce and the communication, but in their heart, they truly are not there. They are not one with Christ. So what is the true line or a de- of demarcation? What is the essence of a true believer? I tell you, it's symbolized in this parable by the garment, the clothing of Christ, the robes of His righteousness. Let me ask you this day, let us all heed this question, are you truly clothed in Christ's righteousness? What is the gospel to you? If you answer that question with something like, I am a hopeless, wretched sinner who is hell-bent to teeth-gnashing anguish forever except for one thing, the righteousness of my Savior Jesus Christ was applied to my account. When His blood was shed, He took my punishment and I plead Him as my good standing with the host of the wedding. I am here because of Christ. I am not here because of me. You see, in ancient Near East culture, the host of the wedding would provide garments for all who attended. He would say, welcome to the feast. Here is your change of clothes. Then you would go and you would prepare yourself. So you would come to his wedding on his terms. You would submit to it and you would participate with his clothing, what he provided on. And in the same way, so it is in the kingdom of God. We do not participate in good standing with the Lord if we are not clothed in the righteousness that Christ provides. So the third category of who's excluded are those who are in the church but are not of it because ultimately they are found not to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Who is included? Naturally, we then ask, all who are clothed in the robes that Christ supplies. And this includes even the Gentiles. Praise His holy name. Matthew 8, if we turn back, we see a record of Jesus healing different ones, surprising miracles, not just surprising because of the nature of the supernatural power that was evident, but also in the types of people that Christ interceded for. In eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, it says, He entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Here is a Gentile that is seeking Christ's blessing for his servant. Jesus heals the man, and he marvels at his faith. And then he prophesies in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see that the wedding parable is simply expanding and expounding on this prophecy from Matthew chapter 8. There are those who were the elect provisionally and culturally from the Old Covenant. 
And if they did not trust the righteousness of Christ, but trust their Hebrew heritage to be a sufficient garment for them to be in good standing at the wedding feast, what would ultimately happen? They would be thrown out, just like the man was in the parable. But there are others, the unlikely Gentile outsider, who come to Christ and submit to Him and accept His garments. And for them, they become grafted in to the olive tree and associated with what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob represented before, the people of God, the true fellowshipping community, bride, and body of Christ. Those who are included include Gentiles. Praise His holy name. And finally, this morning, I would ask the question, I've done it in part, but just to extend it a little bit, where are you in this parable today? Where do you see yourself? There is the obvious that we've already mentioned. Am I in good standing with the Lord? But you might go on and ask a different, and ask a different question, question indeed. Maybe you don't find yourself by God's grace and grace alone laid, so laden down with the cares of life that you're in danger of ignoring or offering excuses for the fellowship of the wedding feast. Maybe by God's grace and grace alone you're not found among the blatant rebels who oppose Christ to his face. And by his grace and grace alone, yes, you are in the church and you are of it because you plead the righteousness of Christ as the raiment sufficient for, your, uh, to, for you to be in his good graces. But there is an additional step to which we are called, and I submit to you it is this, to join those who are engaged in sharing the gospel beyond just the particip- participation in the wedding feast. Remember those who are sent, the servants. Jesus had said in this parable that there was uh, uh, characters in this story who are sent to bring the message, bring the invitation, bring the heralding summons of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who are invited. If you have shared in God's in the white robes of Jesus Christ, cleansing blood, if you have joined the fellowship of the beloved, I would encourage you, according to this text, according to Matthew 28, to join the sent ones, to be one of those servants, so long as the bridegroom tarries, to issue the summons, the invitation to go out to the highways and the byways and to plead with the world to come in. Yes, some will pay no attention to you, perhaps most, Yes, others will offer excuses. Still others, and maybe increasingly so, in the context of our culture, will seize you and treat you shamefully, perhaps even killing you. But this calling is a great privilege still to be among those who not only have their fellowship secured in Christ's righteousness, but also are obedient to be sent as His servants to herald the coming King. Let me encourage you beyond the obvious application of wedding participation this morning to join the servant brigade that calls out with the gospel summons that the Lord may use even us, even today, to reach His chosen ones, His elect. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that every heart would be stirred to overflowing gratitude, the reality of the truth of this parable today. I pray if the cares of life have crept in to any degree that might offer excuses or make us passive 
or paying less attention than we used to to the glorious privilege of being included in the fellowship of the beloved because of the cleansing power of Christ's blood, may we repent today. Lord, if there are any here who have not received the robes of Christ's righteousness, I pray that they would fall on their knees before the host of the wedding and that they would submit to the saving work of Jesus Christ as their raiment to assure their fellowship and communion with God forever. I pray, Lord, if there are those who are feeling the call to be bolder and bringing the proclamation, the summons of the gospel to the lost, that you would equip them and give them words and wisdom that their adversaries cannot comprehend. And may we do this loyally and faithfully until you bring us home, always looking forward to the day when we will join with that throng whose voices pooled together are like the waterfalls of glory and the peals of thunder that worship the Lamb and feast forever at the table of reconciliation with God Almighty made possible through the death of His Son. We thank You, Lord Jesus. It's in Your holy name we pray. Amen.